This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Stay tuned for more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. You will have children suing their parents, the doctors, and the insurance companies who underwrote the whole scheme. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined by James Dolezal. James, it's good to be with you. It's good to be here for this continued discussion with uh, our guest. Yes, that is what it is. We're continuing our discussion with Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College, author, uh, commentator, about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you didn't listen to part one, you can go back and listen to that now. It might give you a better idea of where we are in this interview. But um, we'll assume at this point you've listened to part one and we'll pick it up where we left off. Your book is nearly 400 pages long, and um, while it's not the density of Charles Taylor, it, it, it does require some, it does require some uh, attention and detail. And early on in the book, you, you address one Christian response to the sort of inflammation of sexual identity or the sort of rapid rise of that being all-defining uh, as just diagnosing it as sin. Sometimes when my children are small and they say, you know, dad, why does so-and-so do such and such? Sometimes I have found an answer uh, simply, well, because of sin. And now my kids actually know that that's, that's the stock answer, because of sin. Um, why can't we just say, or why, why not just say, well, because of sin, because that's not wrong, um, but yet why do we need this kind of intellectual context? I know you mentioned the yeah. apologetic value of it earlier. What advantage is had for us as Christians to kind of get on the inside and yeah. understand this thinking? Because I know, I know what you're doing in your book. You're not, you're not throwing rocks every other page. You even say early on that you would want those that in the end you criticize to recognize a truthful presentation of their position. Why? Why do we need to take the time to do that? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think the, my general sort of answer to that is, well, when you use the concept of sin to explain specific manifestations of human sinfulness, uh, you are explaining everything in general and nothing in particular. The, the example I use in the book is, you know, do the Twin Towers fall down on 9-11 because of gravity? Well, yes, they do, but that doesn't actually explain why the Twin that Towers fell down. particular event. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't explain the particular events. And it seems to me that, that human sin has manifested itself in terms of moral structure of society in very different ways throughout history. And it could well have manifested itself quite differently today. Maybe, you know, there's nothing uh, intrinsic to, to sex that means that sexuality and sexual identity were inevitably going to appear at this point in history as the big issues that we are facing. There is a specific narrative that lies behind that. So, on one level, I, I want to just do the typical historian's thing and say, okay, how do we explain the, the fact that the, the contingent manifestation of things that we have is the one we have? Secondly, and again, touching on the point that Jonathan just made, I think this helps us understand 
the significance of what's going on and the significance of what Christians may be asked to do in the near future. You know, using those pronouns. Well, is that a, a neutral thing or do we have to understand that as part of a larger framework that's being put in place here that means the use of pronouns is, is, is not simply a polite and caring thing to do for somebody, but actually carries with it freight that we may not be aware of if we're not aware of how sex has come to function in modern society and what it actually means to use these pronouns. So there's that uh, dimension to it too. Thirdly, again, again, returning to an answer I, I gave uh, a few moments ago, I think the narratives helps us to understand why things seem to be happening so fast now and seem to be so irreversible. Uh, and two, also understand how the narrative that has manifested itself politically in, in terms of sexual identity actually touches a whole range of other things as well. And in, in, the, in one part of the book, I look at you know, how the same understanding of selfhood is shaping how we think about abortion, how it's shaping how we think about pornography, how it connects to cancel culture on campuses. I, I could have added another chapter on how it impacts how we think about race. The whole uh, racial explosion of the last 12 months is not unrelated to the broader changes in the notion of personhood that I'm tracing uh, in this book. So, I, I think the narrative helps us to explain a lot of what we might think of as, uh, as, as disparate, anarchic things happening in society at the moment, but actually have a, a deep-seated rationale in something that binds them together, and that's this developing notion of psychological selfhood that I trace out uh, in in the course of the book. So let's talk then a little bit about the tracing out. Um, these things didn't metastasize overnight or in one Supreme Court decision or because of one television show or anything like that. These are these are long term intellectual trends. Uh, the substance of your book is to break that down, exactly what those trends are. But I wonder if you could, for our listeners' sake, try to summarize what some of those main strands are that sure. lead us to this point. Yeah, well, the, the basic thesis of the book is that the sexual revolution needs to be set against the background of a transformed understanding of selfhood. And by selfhood, I, I don't mean it in the common sense way that I am me and you are you, Jonathan, you are you, James, and we, we intuitively know that we're not each other, but we're individuals. By selfhood, I mean that which makes us tick, that, which, that way that we understand ourselves as fitting into the world around us. Uh, that understanding of ourselves that gives meaning to our lives and, and to the world around, uh, that which determines how we think of things like happiness and fulfillment and purpose. And I say that th there are sort of three big moves over the last three or 400 years in the understanding of selfhood. The first is that in, in the Enlightenment, you could trace it back to the Reformation if you wanted, or, or even to the late medieval period. I start with Rousseau and the Enlightenment. You have a psychologizing of the self, that the self really starts to be that which I think and feel inside my head. It becomes a kind of internal thing. That's where the self is really most authentic. And uh, that is then followed by 
really in the late 19th, early 20th century, you, you have the, the figure of, of Sigmund Freud. And Freud really builds on that notion of the, the internal self, thinking of ourselves as what goes on inside our heads. And he says, you know, and what goes on inside your head is really driven by sexuality. It's sexual desire that defines us. So you have the, the self is psychologized, then the self is, is sexualized. Then in the mid-20th century, you have this, this interesting fusion of, of, of Marxist thought and Freudian thought. It's not really an obvious marriage for, for a number of reasons, but you have a number of interesting Marxist thinkers using Freud to solve certain problems in Marxism, primarily how do we get the working classes to be aware of how bad their condition is? How do we wake up their psychology? How do we give them political consciousness? And these guys, particularly Herbert Marcuse and Wilhelm Reich, marry Marx and Freud and say, you, you know, the way we do it is we need to realize that the bourgeois family is, is the unit in which individuals are shaped into obedient automata that fit in with the bourgeois nature of society. And the family is protected by sexual codes, monogamy, chastity, these kind of things. So what we need to do in order to sort of awaken political consciousness is destroy, shatter these bourgeois sexual codes. In other words, what these Marxists do is, is they make sex political. So you have a move from the self is psychological, psychology becomes sexual, and then sex becomes political. And that really sets up the play for the 1960s. The 1960s is not simply about expanding the range of legitimate forms of sexual expression. The 1960s is, is really about dismantling the sexual codes that support what the Marxists saw as, as bourgeois capitalist society and making people truly free to be that which they are inside. So that's the kind of the narrative in a nutshell. Now, most of our neighbors have not read Marcuse, Wilhelm Reich. They've not read these theorists in any great detail, but other factors have played in to sort of popularize these ideas. Uh, soap operas, preacher gospel of, well, you can jump from one bed to the next without any real consequence. And guess what? That's what makes you you. That's where real freedom consists. Uh, Hugh Hefner. I think Hugh Hefner is one of the great geniuses of the last hundred years. Uh, I'm not. That's not a stamp of approval, by the way. But to say what what Hefner does is Hefner mainstreams pornography. Hefner mainstreams this idea that at base you're a sexual being, and your freedom can be found in expressing yourself sexually in any which way you choose. So you have a whole host of other factors playing into this. And, and ultimately, what they do is they reinforce a notion of the self that, you know, I think of myself as what goes on up here, and I think of my happiness primarily in terms of the meeting of my sexual desires. The striking thing about that summary, and I, I, yeah, I was persuaded uh, in, in reading your, your book and the way you put it together, but striking thing about that is some of the technical aspects of, of Freud's thought, and you've mentioned this, are, are discredited by, by those who followed after him. And Marx is maybe more contested, but there are aspects certainly of uh, uh, Marx uh, that even his followers would, would disagree with. So it's, it's, it's a striking phenomenon to see these, in one sense, discredited thinkers actually come together to, to, to form the foundation for, for what normal people think today. 
Well, yes, and, and of course, they, the, the power of Marx and Freud, and to an extent, this is the same with Darwin as well, doesn't really lie in the details of their theories, which you can debate. It lies in what you might call the soundbites that grab the imagination. It's very plausible because sexual desire is a very powerful impulse within most human beings. It's very plausible to tell people that you're primarily a sexual being and you know the satisfaction of your sexual desires will make you happy. At the heart of Marxism is the idea that, you know, if somebody somewhere is going without, it's because somebody else somewhere else is exploiting them. It's a kind of zero-sum game that grabs the imagination. And who in modern society, you know, we doesn't have sympathy for the little guy, sympathy for the one who's going without. So very simple ideas uh, emerge from these philosophers that make them inherently plausible, even if, you know, you can destroy Marx's theory of surplus value or you can get rid of the Oedipus complex and show that it's hopelessly simplistic. The cause of their philosophy have come to grip the modern imagination, even among those who've never heard of them. And when you talk about soap operas or, or uh, Hugh Hefner, that's essentially all it is, is the soundbite at that point. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. taking that, that soundbite feature and putting it on, on full display. Yeah. I mean, and as I say, Darwin's kind of the same because the power of Darwin does not lie in the fact that most people who believe in evolution can parse the genetics that underlie it. It lies in the fact that, hey, people look like monkeys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> surely there's a the earth looks old, people look like monkeys. Surely there's got to be a connection here somehow. Carl, I wonder if you could speak to the perception of, I don't know how to say it, rapidity. It seems that suddenly we've gone from, you know, um, gay marriage to transgenderism to, you know, and you don't know what's next. But I, I wonder if you know, th there are these sort of moments of rap. I mean, I, I think of, you, you mentioned the popularization of it. Um, a film like Dr. No, 1962, where Sean Connery, as, as James Bond, sleeps around, and that's, all, that's part of his brand. It's not, just the, you know, it's not just that he's good at cards or roulette or, you know, knows his wines. Uh, it, it's also this sort of um, philanderer lifestyle as the, the playboy. Whereas in maybe 1952, it'd almost be inconceivable that that would have been sort of mainstream theater fodder. What is it that sort of creates these moments, those perfect storms where these ideologies that are there sort of push themselves to a new levels of public expression? Yeah. I mean, really, you're asking someone's the plausibility question. Why is it right. that these things have become plausible? Again, I, I think there's a multi-pronged answer to that. Certainly, you could say in the 60s, you have the, the advent of cheap contraception, for example. Uh, sleeping around was something that was hard to get away with in early modern and pre-modern society. And you'd have uh, obligations yeah, at the end of it. I mean, you, you know, okay, every, every young man, you know, his dream is to sleep with a woman. Yeah, that's, that's a hardy perennial of male existence, I think. But in earlier generations, you know, you've got to get a job. You've got to be clean. Uh, you've got to woo somebody because if you got her into trouble, she's probably got a dad and brothers who come after you and, and hold you to account. The advent of cheap contraception, easy available contraception, the risk factors dramatically lowered at that point. So promiscuous behavior becomes more plausible. I think at an intellectual level, we also see the, uh, 
the advent of, of Nietzsche's madman. You know, Nietzsche writes about the madman in the gay science, and the madman is saying, you guys have killed God. Now we've got to transvalue everything. We've got to rebuild every stage up. And then at the end of that passage, the madman throws his lantern on the ground and says, I've come too early. My, my time is not yet. Well, guess what? The madman's time is now. And what the madman was doing then, essentially saying to the, the polite atheists in the, in the town square, your morality is built on nothing. That challenge has finally been picked up, I think, in, in, the, in the past 50, 60 years. And intellectually, I think the Second World War is very significant here because much of this thinking, uh, much of the ideological underpinnings of, uh, of modernity emerged from France and Germany after the Second World War, countries that had been deeply traumatized, where the old establishments had, seen, had been seen to dramatically fail, where iconoclasm was of the order of the day. Uh, and when that thinking gets you know, exported to the United States and comes to grip the minds of elites in universities, it has an interesting trickle-down effect on a generation of intellectuals who are going to be challenging uh, the status quo. So you have that coming in as well. More recently, I, I think the advent of, of the internet. I uh, saw a, a, an interesting lecture recently by Nell Ferguson who was saying the, the real analog between today uh, and the past is not 1968. Uh, it's not Weimar Germany. It's the Reformation. Because then you have a new information technology, the printing press. And guess what? You have this explosion, this iconoclastic explosion that involved, among other, among other things, tearing down of statues, literally tearing down of statues. He said, and it's fueled by information. And then he goes on to make the sort of the terrifying uh, comment that, you know, the rate of information production now is maybe a hundred times as fast as it was in the Reformation. So the speed of change now is also fueled, I think, by information technology and the ability for ideas and the ability for public opinion to be formed fast and rapidly by a new technology, the like of which, as with the printing press, we're living in the middle of and don't really have a full handle on the full implications thereof. So I think all of those things fuel this, this very, very rapid and accelerating change within society. I remember 25 years ago giving what I now regard as a ridiculous speech at a Bible study about how gay marriage would never catch on. It was just 25 years ago, man. What an idiot I was. You know, I should well, be fired on the spot. <laughs> well, in the... <laughs> And the internet, I wonder if we could find a recording of that. If it, for the, if the internet. Um, Thankfully not. It was at a private Bible study. Oh, okay. So. All right. That's and no one had a phone to, to record you. So. Yeah. No. It's the no. best place to try out ideas. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking you're, the parallel there with the internet, it, it's, it's especially pernicious too, because not only is there this vast amount of information which can serve a, a, a propaganda as a, a, an instrument of propaganda, but the internet, particularly with respect to to sex provides all this access to pornography of all different yeah. kinds. So in a sense, yeah. it's both, it both can uh, convince you and, and give you the opportunity to, to sort of try out what you've learned, so to speak, mentally speaking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about pornography is research is now emerging that, you know, pornography has dramatic effects on, on particularly on young men in, in a variety of ways. Uh, but one of the interesting factors is the more somebody uses pornography, the more, for want of a better term, liberal their views of what is and is not acceptable sexual behavior will be. Uh, 
In other words, by seeing certain acts performed on the screen regularly, it it effectively dulls our moral sense to those things. I, I'm always reminded of that moment in Augustine's Confessions when, if you remember, Olypius is dragged to the, mm-hmm. the games and he doesn't want to go, he doesn't want to see a gladiatorial com- a combat. So he closes his eyes. And as the one gladiator slays the other, the crowd roar and Olypius opens his eyes. And Augustine uses, you know, he brilliant literary sort of interplay, he says, and the wound dealt to his soul was more deadly than that dealt to the gladiator. And from that day on, Olypius led the crowds to the, uh, the Colosseum. And Augustine is describing there a phenomenon that's being confirmed with, with pornography use, that seeing stuff actually alters the moral sense. And there's brain physiology to back this up, that the brain is altered by what it sees. And that seems to have actually a, 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 an actual payoff on our moral sense. Mm. So, you know, when, if the statistics about pornography used to be believed, the arguments for traditional sexual morality are going to be less and less plausible because more and more people are having their brains morally and physically rewired on this point. Right. So it's not just a matter of using the internet to put out good arguments against these changes. Uh, We could do that and double the amount of information that would be out there on the other side, but it's, it's, it's also got that deadening uh, effect. Yeah. So what thinkers did you find the most promising in terms of helping us see clearly where we are and what our obligations as Christians ought yeah. to be. It's a complex problem yes. that didn't happen overnight. I was reminded as you were talking about, forget who it was, who was asked this sort of famous quote, how did you go bankrupt? Well, very slowly and then all at once, you yes. know, and, and it's that, it's that same idea, but yeah. Um, yeah. nonetheless, what were thinkers whom you encountered that were helpful in, yeah. in both diagnosing and perhaps pointing a way forward? I think on the diagnosis side, it's easier to to, to highlight. So I, I, the book is really a, a, a long dialogue with Charles Taylor and Philip Reef in particular, and also Alistair McIntyre. And sadly, I only discovered his stuff later on in the writing, but Leszek Kolakowski, the, uh, the Polish philosopher as well. So those, the t- big two ones, Taylor and Reef, and then McIntyre and Kolakowski, I think very helpful in understanding uh, the nature of this kind of therapeutic society in which we're living at the moment. In terms of uh, writers who are helpful for uh, seeing the way forward or understanding what's at stake and, and thinking Christianly about the situation, uh, ironically, I think John Paul II, his work on the theology of the body is uh, extremely helpful. Yeah, one of the the sort of the subtexts in the book is the, the the body has ceased to be who we are. It's become an instrument for achieving what we want to be. And I think what John Paul II does is he really brings us back to understanding that that no, you don't inhabit your body. Your body isn't uh, like a suit of clothes that you put on or you adapt in order to fit in with your identity. Your body, in a deep sense, is who you are. And I think that's a note that we we need to to hear struck again and again. I would love to, I think there's a book just been published by, I think Zondervan's, I've not read it, but a Protestant writing on the theology of the body. I, I don't know how good it is. I've not read it, but it certainly looks like something uh, that's moving in the right direction. If listeners are interested, I would suggest Christopher West's 
work on the theology of the body. He's got two popular books. He's a Catholic author, but these books are not, you know, objectionably Catholic to a Protestant reader. I think they're sort of ecumenical and would be good for any any Christian to read. He has two books on this, and the, la- the, the latest one is Our Bodies Tell God's Story. That's a, a really nice way of looking at how our bodies are given to us by God and are integral. Well, they're not given to us by God. That implies there's an us outside the body. The body is how God has made us. Uh, so I, I think John Paul II and those who popularized his thought, I love the work of Robbie George and Ryan Anderson. Uh, again, they're Roman Catholic writers, but I think their stuff on marriage and on gender is exceptionally helpful for Christians to read. Uh, one of the things I liked about Robbie George is he models gentlemanliness when he's engaged in, in mortal combat. Uh, and he's also a kind of optimist. My default is, you know, everything's going downhill, man. It's going to get worse before it even gets even worse than that. Robbie's not prepared to surrender. He, he wants to fight a winsome fight till the last man standing. So I think he's, he's inspirational. On, on that front as well. But those guys I found uh, uh, particularly helpful. Yeah, I did. I did sometimes think when I was reading this book, uh, uh, another uplifting, <laughs> uplifting book from Carl Truman. <laughs> well, well uh, now I'm going to recommend the most uplifting guy of them all, of course, you know, Rod Dreher. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask you about it. He writes the introduction. He's a friend yeah, he's, of yours. Yeah. And uh, so did this lead you to where it's led him? No, I mean, I, 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 he makes me feel like a naive optimist. Whenever we exchange, <laughs> anything, I think, I'm, a, I'm an, actually a naive optimist. I'm not a horrible pessimist after all. I think Rod's, Rod's are very practical. His latest book, Live Not By Lies, is actually very practical. And what he's done is he's, he's interviewed and talked to a lot of people who had experience of, of, to, of hard totalitarian regimes behind the Iron Curtain and that. And he's looking at what communities under pressure did then that enabled them to survive and thrive in very adverse circumstances. America's never going to be the Soviet Union. The kind of totalitarianism that comes in here will be of a different form. Rod says it's going to be the brave new world, hedonistic form, soft totalitarianism, rather than the hard totalitarianism of a 1984. But the nature of, of how communities survive and thrive in the midst of a very hostile culture, that dynamic is, is something we need to be thinking about. And I hope that, I do hope that Rod's vision is, is too catastrophic. I hope that it doesn't come to the kind of thing that, that he thinks it's going to come to in the United States or in the West. But I think we'd be foolish not to be preparing for that, to have a kind of plan that means if that does happen, we're well set. The sexual revolution caught us completely off guard. We, we particularly as Protestants, we, we simply don't have the depth of, of social, philosophical thinking to draw on to help us. I've had to list all these Catholics and say, who's good to read about this? We were not prepared as Protestants for simply going to mimic a generic form of Protestantism indefinitely. Well, that's collapsed. We need to be thinking now about what should we be doing here and now to prepare our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren for a very, very different world to the one which we grew up in. Carl, as you listed all of the, uh, the Catholics that you recommend, um, I, it was actually you who recommended me to read Catholics 15 years ago. One thing I discovered in that tradition, and it's not uniquely Catholic, if Protestants want it, they can have it, is, is the realism 
uh, in which perception, in which reality isn't just a projection of grids in our mind um, or or desires in our heart, corrupt or or what or whatnot, but that in fact there's a there's a reality out there, um, metaphysical and physical, that requires a, a sort of conformity and compliance in our minds. And I wonder if that's if that's the thing that you know after Immanuel Kant sort of eviscerated the access to metaphysical reality in the minds of the West. It was, it was the Catholics, not the Protestants, who stood up and defended, uh, at least for that time, realism mm. and the ability for the mind to naturally access reality, even as it is embedded in physical structures. And I want this idea that I'm a, back to Jonathan's opening question from so long ago now, I'm a woman in a man's body. Um, is is in a certain sense taking its leave of an empirical reality, um, and I wonder if Protestants, particularly biblicism, and what I mean by biblicism is the Bible has been allowed maybe to function uh, kind of like Kant's synthetic a priori, a kind of um, a kind of grid that wasn't that wasn't embedded in a reality out there, but yeah. was sort of something else and foreign from on high. And so when people go, when people go wrong about the reality out there, um, we, we weren't really prepared to defend the idea that in fact, that reality was accessible and defensible. Does yeah, that make think, sense? Yes, absolutely. And that's why I said earlier, I said, you, know, you could start the narrative with the Reformation, uh, that, that move inwards in some ways starts at the Reformation. I think there are positives and negatives of that. You know, that's for a uh, discussion right. for another day. But I do think your pinpointing biblicism is significant there. You know, why should marriage be between a man and a woman? Well, God says so. That's the kind of the, the Protestant response. Well, but you can say more than that. That's why we have the bodies we have. There's a complementarity embedded in reality that isn't necessarily directly stated in the text, but is part right. of the world in, in which we live. Uh, this actually gives me... Um, Maybe hope would be too strong a word. But, I mean, in the book, I actually say the, the one area of the sexual revolution where I have some long-term hope is on the issue of transgenderism. It may well be that transgenderism is a step too far. You know, you can... Just because, of, just because reality is a stubborn yeah, thing? You can contradict reality for just so long, but you know, you're going to get mugged by reality at some point. And Boys I, and girls are still going to be born. Yeah. I have a feeling that the form this may take uh, is you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, there will be catastrophic human suffering in the interim, you know, but you will have children suing their parents, the doctors, and the insurance companies who underwrote the whole scheme for using them as chemistry sets when they were children. You know, for taking their stupid childhood confusions deciding their normative and using that as an opportunity to pump them full of hormones and mutilate their bodies. Yes. Right. You know, as I, I said, uh, I think I said this on my own podcast, my own podcast show. This is America folks. As soon as the, as soon as you start to hit insurance companies in their pocketbooks, the social imaginary is going to change at that point. You know, when people get start getting sued and financially ruined over this, maybe they'll start to realize just how ridiculous this whole transgender movement 
is. Now, to say that, don't take me as belittling the agony of right. individuals struggling with gender identity. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the trendy people who are using this as an opportunity, I think, to abuse others rather than truly help them. Well, you know, I, I, that's, it's a great point to end on that r- reality has a way of intruding. However, I must add, I remember having a conversation with you. It was, it was helpful, actually, a few years ago where I said something like that. And you said, well, yeah, but uh, cultures also commit suicide sometimes. <laughs> that's very true. Yes. <laughs> and there, yeah. is always, there is always that ultimate uh, possibility. Yes, that is. And uh, as I say, there will be human suffering, whatever happens in the interim. And tragically, the only way you can tell which civilizations are committing suicide and which are not is when they don't do it. Uh, you know, it's not until afterwards, looking back, you can realize, wow, they, they pulled back there. We could easily jump over the edge of the cliff on this one. There's not a lot at the moment to indicate that the tide is going to be, be turned back. Uh, not a lot whatsoever. Well, that's the Carl Truman we, we all know and love right there. That's, Channeling that's the my guy. inner Drea. Channeling that's my the, inner that's Drea. the guy we invited on the show. No, Carl, in all seriousness, a, a really outstanding, I think, landmark for our Circles book that um, we want to commend to uh, anyone. And, uh, and, and thank you for writing. I know it was a, a long path for you to write this book and uh, and and thank you for writing it and for coming on the show and then for your your friendship over the years as well but we can we can uh, just leave it leave it at that with the show and the book thank you very much thanks for having me on well james i i i think you probably feel the same way i do that was a a, a lengthy interview but it was it needed that kind of length and depth and um, and and i think we're both in agreement this is a significant book that we hope many in our circles read and take very seriously. I don't know of anything that's doing currently for us exactly what Carl Truman's book is doing. Um, and it's not a, it's again, it's not a slight variation. Yes. He's indebted to Charles Taylor and others, but he's doing, he's doing something with that uh, for this cultural moment. If I can, if I can call it that, uh, to give us an understanding of just the landscape as we, as we, and he even calls us a prologue. I think he ends the book with a prologue. This is, this is just getting us ready uh, for the, maybe the next several decades, barring the Lord's return in which we are engaging in these sorts of discussions uh, with a culture that seems to be rapidly changing around us. This, I think this is a great um, prologue to that further work. Yeah, this isn't the fight that any of us would have chosen, but it has chosen us. And I think he lays out uh, the facts on the ground, uh, how we got here uh, as clearly as anyone I've read. The book, again, is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman. If you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of this book, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a, a, a spot there for you to enter your contact information and win a copy of this book from our friends at Crossway. If you're able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which hosts our podcast, but also hosts uh, Dr. Truman's own podcast as well, Mortification of Spin, and many articles uh, that he's written. Uh, you can do that. You can go to alliancenet.org. There's a donate button there or placefortruth.org where there is a donate button as well. 
If you have feedback, we would love to hear it. And if, if you think of anyone who might be helped by this, please pass it along to them. And, uh, and, and thank you from James and myself. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. With your help, we continue to uphold solid biblical doctrine and equip Christians to do the same. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word. With your prayerful support, we continue sharing that word with those who are lost and encouraging the church with solid biblical teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of hope that increases our joy and changes lives. Please prayerfully consider supporting this proclamation of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us. You can make a gift online at AllianceNet.org support. That's AllianceNet.org support. Or call 1-800-488-1888.